time to screw the norms. To fit in, we often hide what's on our minds, who we really are, or who we want to be, or even what we want to do. But now you're having the right conversations. Here, we'll talk about sex, relationships, and mental health, and how they interact with each other and so many other aspects of life. Shame can't survive when we're honest and curious with each other and ourselves. It's time for your mind to scream less and for you to screw more. I'm Rachel Wright, a non-monogamous queer psychotherapist and your host. Welcome back, friends, to The Right Conversations. This episode is a conversation about sober sex with Tawny Lara. I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. Will you introduce yourself to everyone listening so they can learn a bit more about you? Hello, my love. Thank you for having me today. I'm yes. excited to be here as well. Um, I am a, a writer, podcaster, um, off, author, multi-hyphenate, like all millennials are these days, I think. <laughs> um, and But I, I think the most relevant title for this podcast is that the internet calls me the sober sex expert. Yes. Yes. I, okay. So will you, before we get into like the content content, like the educational piece, are you open to sharing a little bit about your journey of how that title came to be and how you got to this place? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I've, I've been a sober writer for the last seven years. Uh, my my sobriety is inherently tied to my recovery or to my writing. I've I started a blog very early in my sobriety, and most of the writing that I do is under the mental health recovery umbrella. And in that, you know, in these seven years of being a sober journalist, um, and also just being a sober human, I realized that the idea of dating and let alone having sex without alcohol really scared the hell out of me. Mm. So um, I naturally, you know, as we, we journalists do, we write about what we're going through sometimes. And uh, there wasn't, I got sober in 2015. So there wasn't a ton of resources on the topic. So I kind of became that resource and did a bunch of research on what alcohol does to our bodies, our minds, how that intersects with sex and dating and re relationships and communication and all of the things. And um, so I, I wrote about that topic for a couple of years. And then I, I did a live event um, here in New York with a, my friend, Ruby Warrington, who she created the term sober curious, like a true icon. Um, and she introduced me as the sober sexpert. So uh, it just kind of stuck. And now I'm here. Wow. I love this. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. So, okay, let's, let's dive in. Let's, um, we're going to talk today, uh, friends about both the physical and the mental aspects. And I know a lot of you listening are probably like, but Rachel, you don't like to separate those because the brain is in the body. <laughs> and yes, that is true. And what we're really talking about is like the physical as in like the somatic and biological and physiological effects. And then the mental as in the psychological effects. So we're separating it out that way. Um, Tony, is there anything else you want to say about that before we dive in? No. Um, I, I, yeah, I guess. So 
I guess it's just important to remind listeners, I, I am not a, a mental health professional. I am not a biochemist or, a, you know, anything like that. I am everything that I will share on this podcast comes from a being a journalist who nerds out on statistics <laughs> and facts. Um, and then just being a sober woman who shares my own authentic journey. So just wanted that disclaimer that, uh, I am, I am not a, I'm a professional journalist and nothing, <laughs> none of the other mental health stuff. Super, super appreciate that. Um, okay. So let's dive in. So physical, you mentioned like the physical effects around alcohol and sex. Where do you want to even start with that discussion? Yeah. I mean, we can, we can talk about how, you know, on a somewhat superficial level, alcohol dries you out. It dehydrates mm. you. It dehydrates your skin. So the reason I say superficial is like your people who drink a lot of alcohol tend to have drier skin. And that also shows up in vaginal dryness. Um, and it could also show up with erectile dysfunction, you know, reducing the blood flow to the penis. And, you know, those are the two big ones that, that I, I would lead with. And then, you know, from there, it's just reminding people that if you're taking a shot of tequila for liquid courage, which is bullshit, and we can dive into that later, but you're, you know, you can't selectively turn off parts of your brain or parts of your body. Like if you're numbing the anxiety, you're numbing other, other parts of you. So you're actually hindering genital response. It can lead to, you know, sexual anhedonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure. There's, you know, there's a, a laundry list of ways alcohol does not help you sexually, despite the societal narrative of liquid courage equals fun drunk sex. Why do you think that narrative came to be? I I think it's just it's came as a side effect of alcohol being so socially acceptable and encouraged and glamorized on screen where it's like even you know on sex in the city if if Carrie Bradshaw has to drink two for one margaritas to talk to Burger about having bad sex then like what the hell are we normal people supposed to do mm, yes so seeing this modeled by people or characters even that we respect or identify with and then just kind of mimicking that behavior as we all do so often yeah. And, and also, you know, a lot of us, you know, speaking from personal experience, I, I met alcohol and sex during puberty. So mm -hmm. they're, they're interconnected. I met them both at the same time. So I had to actively unlearn a lot of that connection and discover who I am sexually without alcohol, which was a, a, a pivotal part of my recovery journey. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Would you mind? Yeah. Yeah. Like, did you have a particular question or just, nope, just generally? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, you know, especially for queer people, like a, a lot of what I talk about is how the gay bar does a disservice to the queer community where yes, it's great that there's a, a place where we can feel seen and we can connect with like-minded people. But when you are connecting your sexuality with alcohol from, from day one, it, it, can lead to some really problematic inter intersections that are very difficult to unlearn. And if you're, if you're relating sex, 
gender identity, sexuality, with alcohol, the thought of separating those can be very overwhelming. Yes, absolutely. So what, how did you go about separating that? Like if, if somebody's listening and they're like, oh shit, that, yep, those are definitely intertwined for me. Where did you <laughs> begin kind of unraveling those things? So, you know, like I said, I got sober in 2015. This is before sober curious was like a household term and like sobriety was trendy and cool. Um, but I was, it was definitely on the cusp of that. So for me, it was doing a lot of just research and reading. Cause like, you know, being a journalist, I, I read all of the books and listened to the, you know, there wasn't a ton of podcasts back then, not like now, but mm -hmm. you know, I listened to the resources that were out there. And, you know, when it comes to sexuality, I did the same thing. Like what, when I stopped drinking at age 29, I met myself for the first time, you know, I started self-medicating mm -hmm. at like 14, 15. So, you know, that those 14 years, 14, 15 years, I was cultivating this other persona. So at 29, I had to unlearn a lot of that. And, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the term arrested development. Yeah. Where, so like, you know, like you could probably explain it <laughs> better no, than no, I no. can. You, you go for it. I, I love it through this lens and this context. Okay, great. Well, then I, I want to say what I think it is, and I would love your perspective on it. Perfect um, deal. <laughs> so yeah, so Arrested Development, aside from being an amazing uh, TV show from the early 2000s, is a, uh, it's, it's basically your development has been stunted by, by something. So for me, it was alcohol and drugs and yeah. sometimes sex. Basically, I went through something really traumatic in my early teen years, and I learned how to hide from it hide from those feelings, hide from those emotions, um, by numbing out. Mm -hmm. And so I, like I said, I continued for 14, 15 years, not processing, not learning the tools that a lot of people who've learned the right way, um, or I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say the right way, but learned healthy coping skills. I didn't learn that I learned unhealthy coping skills. So my development was essentially stunted or arrested. Um, and so, you know, even though I was a 29 year old woman in early sobriety, I had the, the brain and coping skills of an early teen who was freshly traumatized. So I'm really grateful that I had an excellent therapist to work through all of that with. I thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, I would have used a very similar definition. Um, it's kind of like a, a plateau of development where someone often gets stuck at the age that they started using a substance um, in this context. So, for example, if somebody starts uh, using heroin at 21, when if and when they get clean and sober, many aspects of their life will be as though they are are 21, even if by the time they're getting clean and sober, they're 31. Mm -hmm. And so often people will experience um, emotional development as being at that 21 year old age, um, maybe social cues being a bit more at that 21 year old age, because the drug itself, both socially and biologically and physiologically kind of stops and hinders that development. Is it the same for eating disorders, cutting gambling yes. anything like so basically if you found this coping skill 
and you didn't learn how to deal with life in a healthy way, you, you get stuck. Yeah. I mean, I would say it depends on because with substances, it can be a bit more black and white. Like for mm. many people, it's like you're either sober or you're not, you know, of course there's harm reduction and, and all of those things, but it's a bit more binary for a lot of folks. Mm. And with eating, with gambling, with sex, with, with things that, um, kind of come with elements of uh, substance addiction, it's not exactly the same because our body is not actually hooked on a substance. It mm. may be hooked on a dopamine release. It may be hooked on a habit. It could be hooked on a, a feeling, but it's not actually a substance. So a little bit different, but yes, we can, we also see it with, with those things too. Cool. Thank you for distinguishing that. Yeah, of course. Of course. So can you talk a little bit more about how alcohol hinders sexual response and what you see in people who go from not having sober sex and transitioning into this world of sober sex? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, the unlearning that I mentioned earlier, a big part of that was separating what I thought sex was mm. to, uh, from, discovering what sex is. So, you know, and to break that down, I, you know, I grew up like a lot of us watching porn and I am very, very pro porn. Don't get me wrong. I mm -hmm. just didn't real, I didn't realize that, you know, I was a teenager. I didn't realize they were actors, right? <laughs> you know, right. Yes. Um, I porn was is like, for entertainment of yes. adults, not education for young people or education of adults, frankly, it's, it is entertainment. And I didn't realize that at the time. Um, so I thought that, you know, if, as soon as a penis goes into me, then I should be, I should climax and I, you know, and like, why, <laughs> why isn't this happening? What's wrong with me? So that led to, you know, I faked orgasms for a very long time because I thought there was something wrong with me that because my sex wasn't like I, like I thought it was quote supposed to be. So the reason I bring all of that up that was a big part of my unlearning and sobriety was reclaiming my sexuality. I stopped faking orgasms in sobriety. I started connecting with my body and mind, discovering what actually turns me on. And then, you know, gaining the confidence to actually ask a partner to do those things that turn me on, which I, I would have never done before because I thought sex was something more done to me as opposed to something that as a woman I can take control of and have sexual agency. I mean, don't get me wrong. I had fun, but it, there was also a large performative element to the drunk sex that I was having. That must've been really scary to go from performative drunk sex to sober non-performative sex. Cause even if you remove the substances aspect, mm -hmm. so many of my clients that go from this performative version into, you know, a little to the left, actually, this is going to take 45 minutes. That, <laughs> that is hard in itself. It is. And I think especially for women and people assigned female at birth, yeah, we were, we were not taught about pleasure. If you, I mean, you know, most, most of us were not taught about pleasure. If you got sex ed, it was abstinence only. Yep. Um, so learning that 
you can have really good sex and you can have fun and you can express yourself sexually, that is really difficult for a lot of women. And it was very difficult for me. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very scary because like we talked about alcohol numbs our body and our mind. So when you first have sober sex or when I first had sober sex, it was like, you know, to, to be a boomer for a minute, like <laughs> it was like turned to 11, you know, like quoting spinal tap here. Um, it was like, oh my God, like all of these feelings, it was a lot. It was like colors were, you know, not even talking about sex anymore, but just colors were brighter. Sounds were louder just because I was not numb to the world. So it, it, I mean, I guess it was almost like having sex without a condom when you're like, oh shit, that feels really good. Um, it was like alcohol was kind of like that where it yeah. protected, like it, it was a form of protection for me to not let anyone get too close. Um, but I also was not able to feel as much. I didn't feel as the pleasure that I feel now. And I'm, I, I also want to say I'm not anti-alcohol. I think if you can have a glass of wine without turning into an asshole, good for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I never learned how to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm not bashing alcohol at all. I really just want to get the message out there that alcohol can and often does do a disservice to your sexual experience. So interesting. Okay. So then if we flip over into the psychological effects and this idea of liquid courage and, uh, you know, I'm trying to put myself in the position of someone listening to this conversation and being like, yeah, yeah, I totally hear you. I understand. But like, I can release myself so much more when I have alcohol. And, and it, it gives me so much more courage inside of me. What would you say to that person? I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I want to talk about the, the biphasic effects of alcohol, but I also want to honor the fact that sure, alcohol is giving you this fun, uninhibited sex. Sure. But it's not the alcohol. <laughs> it is actually your, the alcohol's turning off your inhibitions. You're, you have those instincts. You have that mm -hmm. sexual desire within you already. You're just not accessing it. You're using, you're using alcohol as a tool to access it when there's so many other ways to do it. So that, that is what I would say to the person listening who's like, who's like, but I love my liquid courage. So, mm -hmm. and then to, you know, to transition into the biphasic effects, you know, that means like two phases. So, you know, you have one to two drinks and you feel a little bit relaxed fine. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about the second phase when you're drinking to the point of blacking out or not remembering or mm. just getting intoxicated. That is when you're shutting off your inhibitions. That is when you're not just drinking to relax. That is when you are self like, I'll just go first person. That's when I was drinking to self-medicate for, you know, myriad reasons. So I think it's important to distinguish like I said, if you can have a glass of wine without turning into an asshole and it does help you unwind, that is very different than getting shit canned and having yeah. wild and crazy sex and thinking that you're uninhibited, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and frankly, um, you know, I, a friend of mine 
talks a lot about having consent and boundary and limit conversations completely sober. And then no matter what drugs or alcohol come into play, like you revert back to the decisions you made sober, not what you decide sounds great once you have ingested whatever Mm. substance you're doing. And I think that that speaks to what you're talking about because it's, it, it affects our judgment and whether or not you are, you know, having one, two, three glasses of wine or drinking to the point of blacking out, or you're taking a tiny little bit of cocaine or a lot of cocaine or a little Mm -hmm. bit of Molly or a lot of like whatever the substance is, it's still affecting your judgment. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's why I'm, I, I'm like, I'm not anti-drugs or alcohol. Like it's not for me, but if, if that is what works for you to get in the mood, I'm not going to knock that. It's just, it's more, it's kind of like, it's like read read the label before you eat the food, you know, yes. like know what you're getting into and maybe consider trying sober sex with your partner. See if there's other ways you get in the mood without alcohol, because there's tons of other ways to get in the mood with your partner or a sexual partner. There's tons of alcohol free dates. You know, it's like it's just I'm really just challenge. I want to challenge people to think outside the box uh, you know, pun intended and, uh, have some fun without alcohol. So if somebody is wondering, like, am I someone who could benefit from trying sober sex? What is like a a self-assessment that you recommend? I love that question. Um, I think if you're even asking that question, then hell yeah, you can probably, <laughs> you, I mean, it, it, that's like saying, could I benefit from eat, putting more kale in my diet? Yeah, you, you probably could. Right. Um, so, you know, I think just, just like maybe research it a little bit, like read about, read about, um, you know, there's alcohol free, there's herbal aphrodisiacs. There's, um, you know, there's, there's just so many other things to do. Maybe you and your partner meditate with each other before you have sex. Something I learned in sobriety is that I need significantly more foreplay than I thought I did. Like you said, I I need those 45 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And like taking a couple shots of tequila, fast forwarded through all of that. And I missed Mm. out on all of that. And now it's like, okay, like if I'm going to have a sexual experience with my partner, we're going to take our time and we're going to be mindful and intentional with each other. So it's like having a, have a conversation with your partner, see if they are interested in exploring that with you and why, why not give it a shot? What are some of the biggest challenges that you or, or folks who you've talked to or work with experience when starting this process or experiencing sober sex for the first handful of times? I think honestly, a big part of it goes back to the pleasure that we were talking about is a lot of us met alcohol and sex at the same time. So separating that, which is why, um, you know, I, I didn't go through AA, but something that I, I love about what they say is like, you need to spend a year alone before you go out on a date, before you have sex. Um, the year I think is arbitrary had just, I think you just need to take some time to yourself to, Mm -hmm. Like you said, reconnect with your mind and body, explore your body, masturbate. Like I cannot, you and I are big advocates for masturbation. Um, 
And the reason for that is because it helps you get connected with your body and you learn what turns you on before you bring another person or other people into that conversation, before you bring other people into your bedroom, you're going to know what turns you on. Then you're going to have a little bit more confidence asking for it. So you don't need, you don't need that shot or that glass of wine because you feel more confident in your body. And, you know, it's, I'm, I'm all about encouraging people to, to do exercises like that, to replace the liquid courage with channeling your own intrinsic courage. How do you do that? How did you do that? A, a lot of like what I'm saying with, uh, like with spending alone time and getting to know yourself, getting to yeah. know, getting to know your body, like indulge, indulge in the things that make uh -huh. you feel sexy, explore different types of porn, read different types of erotica. Um, I think a, a, another important thing to note is a big part of some people's sexual liberation is realizing that they actually do not like sex. And that's okay too. Mm. That a lot, there's, um, there's actually not a ton of research on this. Something that I, when I was writing my book, I realized I'm in a very niche on niche on niche corner of the internet. <laughs> um, when I was researching um, the intersection of asexual people and sobriety. So I found a Reddit, a Reddit thread of um, a sober asexual people talking about how once they got sober, they realized that they actually don't like sex and they used alcohol as a tool to make themselves, quote, be normal. Kind of like I was saying, faking orgasms to be normal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, learning about that just really touched me. And I interviewed a couple asexual sober people in my book. And I'm so glad that I, I came across that because I found it so enlightening of just expanding people's idea of what pleasure is. If you're not a sexual being, pleasure could be like a really luxurious bubble bath. Pleasure can be a really delicious meal, you know? So giving yourself space to explore what your sexuality is, even if that means asexuality. Thank you for naming that. And like, truly giving space to allowing whatever comes up during this process and journey. Cause I think that that is something that will often stop folks from starting down a road of exploration is the fear of what if I'm completely different mm -hmm. and that that's okay. It may be jarring. It may be a lot to process. It could be a shift in your day-to-day -day behavior and it's okay. It is, it is, it's absolutely okay. And um, I, I highly recommend reading Ace by Angela Chen. Um, yes. Like, you know, if you're, if you're listening and you think you like, maybe you might be asexual or aromantic. Um, I, I learned so much about my own bisexuality, learning about asexuality, you know, like, mm. um, I, it's, it's such a fascinating book and such an under, um, underrepresented community. So I, I try to speak to it whenever I get the chance. That's really wonderful. What, what did you learn? What were some of your takeaways? If you don't mind me kind of tangenting on that? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, learning the difference between sexuality and romanticism was uh, huge. Yes. Yeah. Um, I did not, I, for a long time, I didn't feel like I was bisexual enough because I only had sexual experiences with women, but all of my long-term relationships have been with men. 
So a lot of my internalized biphobia was like, oh, you're not really bi. You're just like, you're just like kind of straight or like, I, I mean, I, I could talk your ear off on all of the, the words that I used until I embraced my, my bisexuality. But so learning about romanticism just in, in that book blew my mind because I was like, oh my God, I am sexually attracted to women and I am romantically attracted to men and women and, and people of all genders, you know, like, like it was that just, wait, I think I just mixed it up. I am sexually attracted to women and people of all genders. And then I am, uh, romantically and sexually attracted to people of, uh, fuck, I'm fucking it up. No, you got it. You got it. You're, you're sexually attracted to people of all or both genders yes. and you're romantically attracted to more to so men. people of a different gender than you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. You see, like, this is still like so fresh on my brain. Like yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, almost seven years sober and like a bisexual advocate and I'm still learning about my own journey, you know? So it's like, I think it's important to note that, you know, this, your sexual journey is sometimes ongoing and I'm still learning new words, like learning that word last year, romanticism and a romanticism completely opened up my mind. You know, it's, I'm really, really happy that you brought this up because part of the, the beauty of sobriety for folks who have used substances in a way to mask certain things and to not access certain things, not for everybody, is that you do get to explore these things. And, you know, I'm, I'm currently running and who knows when this comes out, if this will be accurate, but maybe past tense. I'm currently running this sexuality incubator where we're going through like the 14 different facets that make up your sexuality. And when people hear sexuality, they immediately just go to sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And it's not like it's so many different things. And, And this last group call, we talked about exactly what you're talking about. So your sexual orientation, your romantic orientation, and then your relationship orientation or design and how those three things are different. And they may be the same, right? It could be that you are bisexual, biromantic, and are non-monogamous. Or it could be that you are heterosexual, polyromantic, and monogamous. Like, yeah, there could just be so many different combinations of these things. And when you're using substances and not accessing those parts of you, you're, you're missing out on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's like, we're just talking about the intersection of sexuality and sobriety, but it's like, that translates to so many parts of your life of like, I, I was stuck in a dead end bartending career when I was bar, when I was drinking, you Mm. know, like I chose the friends that I chose, the jobs that I chose were all to enable my drinking. I had, obviously, I didn't know that at the time. I didn't have the language at the time, but looking back, it's textbook, you know? So it's like, I also, I also like to speak to the opportunity costs that come with having a drinking problem of like, it took me 10 years to get through college and the relationships that I was in were, some of them were very damaging to me. So, you know, there's a, I missed a lot of opportunities to 
to explore healthy relationships. I missed opportunities to find a healthy career where I could move forward. Um, so all of that's to say, like to sum it up is alcohol, like binge drinking kept me stuck. So hope for people out there who maybe see themselves in, in you and in your story. Yeah. What do you want to say to them? <laughs> that's, that's why I, I, I always say that my target audience is younger me because I'm just mm. trying to be the resource that I needed. Um, you know, something I would say if like, if you're listening to this and you're feeling seen, um, you know, you're not alone. There's tons of free resources out there. Um, even just Googling like sober online support group or look up hashtag sober curious on Instagram and look, listen to like there's sobriety podcasts. Like there's tons of free resources. Like it, it back, you know, back in my day, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was you either drank or you went to AA and that was it. Uh, uh, and wow. Great two options. <laughs> right. So now we are in this bizarre place where sobriety is actually cool and there's a thriving non-alcoholic drink scene yeah. and hinge actually just did a study that was published this summer where they they surveyed 3000 millennials and gen z um users of the app about their dating preferences in in reference to alcohol and 75% of these 3000 people said that they're looking for first dates that do not include alcohol. And wow. like, keep in mind, these are not 3000 sober people. So I'm sure some of them were, but these are just 3000 random people that are just looking, looking for something more than let's grab a drink. Mm. So in your experience, what replaces that? Like, cause that is the go-to, which is hilarious. The drink has become synonymous with alcoholic drink. Like coffee's a drink, yes. tea is a yes. drink. Diet Coke is a drink, right? Like what? Let's get water together and walk around. <laughs> That's a drink. <laughs> yes. Like, do you want to go drink seltzer with me? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I like to tell people that most dates are inherently alcohol free. We're just the weirdos who apply alcohol to it. Mm. So, you know, like, like you said, meeting for drinks, you can meet for bubble tea and go for a walk. Yeah. You, you know, um, what, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like, I think my, my biggest piece of advice for just, I mean, even if it's, you can take alcohol out of the conversation just for dating, I, I would highly recommend an experiential date. So mm. and that means going to a museum, go to a botanical garden, go to an escape room, just because instead of just sitting across the bar or the coffee shop and just staring at each other while you're drinking, you can experience something external. Like you'll, you can bond over a piece of artwork. It has nothing to do with you and your past. It's just, you're talking about something beautiful that's in front of you, or you're in at an escape room and you're working together, challenging yourself mental, mentally, which can be intellectually stimulating, um, especially for people that are neurodivergent who need external stimulation to feel connected on a date. So 
Like there's just, there's so many outside of the box date ideas that you do, you do not need to incorporate alcohol. Love it. Okay. So as we start to wrap up here, I want to zoom back out and just kind of ask you, generally speaking, and I know that this is a very large question. If someone were to just say, okay, Tani, if you had one to three pieces of advice mm. for the general public based on your experiences personally and professionally around sex and sobriety, around dating and sobriety, what would you want to offer there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would go back to what I was saying about the importance of dating yourself, whether you're single or you're in a relationship, spending quality time alone to figure out who you are without alcohol is, is going to have tremendous impact on your life. Even mm -hmm. if it's just, like I said, taking a long bubble bath, um, incorporating a different form of foreplay with your partner that does not include alcohol. Like I used to think foreplay was oral sex <laughs> and mm -hmm. that now I know mm -hmm. that that is a sex act. Foreplay is what you do before the sexy time. Um, so a lot of people split a bottle of wine before having sex with their partner or partners. Try something else, you know, like get a bottle of non-alcoholic wine, make a pot of tea. It's, it's more about the ritual than the actual substance. So I, I would say, but all of that comes back to spending time alone, spending time with your body, getting to know who you are without alcohol, I think is going to have tremendous impacts on your sex life, your personal life, your career. Just try, you know, try a dry January, go six months without it. Just, just give it a shot. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you, for your presence in the world and for talking about something that as a therapist that works specifically in sex and relationships to watch the work that you're doing around this intersection of sobriety and sex and relationships specifically is so powerful. I, I also had, I don't talk about this very often, but my, someone in my life, I'll leave this as vague as possible. Someone in my life from a younger time, um, went through a very, very significant addiction. And I saw them through many, many, many rehabs and mm -hmm. also saw them finally start dating again after they stayed sober for over a year. Um, and it was really hard. It was really hard. And part of that was because I still had feelings for this person. And that was a very mm. complicated thing for me. Um, but a big part of it was watching them struggle and watching them relearn a world that they didn't actually learn. Yeah. And so I mean, it, it yeah. goes back to the arrested development, like we were talking yep. about at the beginning, is like, you know, this person got sober and they're meeting the world and meeting themselves for the first time. So it's, Yes. It, is, it can be really overwhelming. And of course, you're talking about someone with with an addiction, which, you know, can be very different from maybe someone who's a casual drinker who's yep. interested in trying alcohol free sex. So, yep. you know, but I, I, I hope is your person is that person doing OK today? You know, to my knowledge, yes. Um, okay. Unfortunately, we're not 
really in contact anymore. And it's been probably one of the hardest mm. <laughs> uh, relationships in my life. And, um, you know, it's challenging to talk about because if I go anymore into detail, it like breaks their privacy. And yeah, I'm so public that like, that's the last thing that I want to do to this other person. So that's why I'm being as vague, as vague as I am. Um, yeah. Uh, but from what I know they are, and I hope that if for whatever reason, them or someone in their family hears this for any reason, just, I love you guys. And, um, I hope that that person is, is doing really well out there. Yes. Same. And like, I guess I'll end it on, on the note of, um, how important it is for someone who loves or cares about someone in recovery. Um, I can't recommend Al-Anon or learning yes. about codependency, um, yep. Al-Anon or CODA, or just even learning about codependency. Um, you know, you didn't cause it. You can't, you, what is it? You didn't cause it. You can't cure it. I'm forgetting the three C's, but it's like, it's the, just because the person you love is struggling, like it's not your problem to fix. And that yeah. can be really, really difficult to hear. Um, so learning your own boundaries, keeping your own distance, you have to take care of yourself and put your own oxygen mask on first. Yep. If someone you love is struggling and also just because they get sober, that doesn't mean that everything gets better, that it often, that's where it starts. It often gets harder because, yes. you know, my anxiety and depression didn't go away just because I stopped drinking. I actually had to deal with it and learn healthy ways to cope. So it was early sobriety is very difficult. That's one of the many reasons why early sobriety is very difficult because you have to find your healthy coping skills because you're no longer using a substance. Yeah. So you need to be patient with this person, whether it's your friend or your sister or your mom, like, or your partner, you have to be patient and you have to set your own boundaries. Thank you so much for this. This conversation means so much to me. And I, I know that so many humans out there are going to get so much out of it, whether they are a casual drinker or someone who, you know, has struggled with addiction anywhere on that spectrum. Um, and like you said, someone who is then in relationship with that person and really looking into to codependency and, and what that actually means. Um, not what our culture has kind of used the word. For. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for holding space for this conversation. It's, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, so grateful. So where can people find you, Tani? Where can they learn more if this resonated? Yeah. So you can follow me on all of the social medias at Tani M. Lara and TikToks, uh, Instagram and Twitter, all of the things. Um, my book, Dry Humping, is coming out uh, fall of Best 23. Best title ever. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So it's dry humping a guide to dating, relating and hooking up without the booze comes out fall of 23. Um, so yeah, follow me and you'll learn it'll be on pre-order soon. And, um, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll dry hump in person sometime soon, Rachel. Yes. I would love that. <laughs> thank you so much, Tani. That's all for today. You sexy folks. What questions came to mind as you were listening? Continue the conversation with me over on Instagram at the right underscore Rachel. And don't forget, please leave a rating and a review so that we can continue erasing shame and stigma together.